It's a pleasure to have the one, the only Ben Rabido of North Cove Advisors. We're talking all things real estate consumer. Ben, what's happening, man? Hey, Thomas. Good to see you, man. Great to see you, man. Uh, you know what? Uh, we we used to uh, we used to it, it was back in by back on Bay Street days. Uh, we, you know, we used to throw back pints and and uh, talk about you know that'd be like a decade ago. Talk about just you know all that was brewing and and the nonsense that you know the uh, you know the absolute like this has been a carnival for some time, right? The housing market. This is not a new story. This has been a wild ride. It feels we've been talking forever about like well, what could possibly kind of up upend or or what's what's the word up in the apple cart what's that saying yeah, yeah, like yeah, you know yeah. overturn tip things the, and cause the apple right, cart right and yeah. uh you know it was always like well there was a couple kind of potential catalyst theoreticals floating out there you had some things come and go you had some little mini downturns here and there but nothing that was like really a, a real test of this market now we've got a real interest rate cycle and so you know if it's if, if it's ever going to happen if you're ever going to see a, kind of the rubber meet the road it's got to be now right well exactly and, and you know coming to the to the main question like you know so we this is uh why hasn't anything blown up already like this has been an incredible rate hiking cycle uh you know one of the fastest on record why you know like why hasn't this blown up already like how's the consumer still alive yeah great question so i think there's kind of four main things that I'm focusing on because you're absolutely right. Like if, if we had gone back a year and a half ago and said rates would be at kind of in the sixes, where do you think house prices and housing activity and all that and inventory levels would be, um, you know, if you had that, that data ahead of time, that rates would be this high, you would have gotten everything wrong. Right. I would have anyways, right. Like yeah. I would have thought that it, it, things would be a smoldering ruin and look, prices are still off, call it 11% nationally from peak, but that's, that's not a disaster. And this is not a disastrous market. It's still a relatively tight market. There's not a ton of inventory. So what's happening, right? And I think the there's kind of four main things that I would focus on. So first off, like to get real distress in a, in a housing market, you do need unemployment to rise. And we just have not really seen that yet. We've seen just an incredibly robust labor market. Now that's starting to change, right? So if, we, you, know, if you look at the unemployment rate, it's now risen 50 basis points in the last three months. That really does not happen outside of recession. So you are starting to see some tentative signs there. You, you look at things like the composite leading indicators from the OECD. They are at levels that historically have had a perfect track record of predicting recession, right? So we, they've only ever gotten this low six other times since the 1960s. Every time it's been recessionary. So, you know, you see that. And then even things like um, this week, we got employment insurance claims, right? And they were up 16% month over month seasonally adjusted in June. So like you're seeing some signs that there's a bit of softness there. So, but all that being the case, the unemployment rate, the labor market's been remarkably strong. So that's that's kind of the first thing that I would point to. Um, and then second, I'd say like, I think everybody, myself included, underestimated the magnitude of the, the savings that accumulated to households throughout the pandemic. And the Bank of Canada has done great work on this. And they basically said that like, you know, if you look at it by income tiers, kind of the top, quintile um, has effectively 10 months of liquid savings um, versus like four months before the pandemic. Now that scales, that drops dramatically once you get into lower income tiers. But the point is Canadians have accumulated a lot of savings. Now that's starting to change. So if you look at the Q1 savings rate, um, it was actually negative once you strip out mandatory pension contributions, which which I like to do because that gives you a better sense of like active savings, right? Because, you know, if, if you're contributing to CPP, 
that gets calculated in the savings rate, but it's not like really, it's not like you're putting money aside voluntarily. And it's not like if you need that hundred dollars back, you can go to CPP and be like, Hey man, give me my contribution back. Cause I got to make my mortgage payment. So it's not, it's not liquid savings. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's the first quarter that that's dipped negative since before the pandemic. So you're seeing signs that that's starting to burn down. You're seeing credit card debt rise, um, which generally is kind of indicative of a consumer that's struggling. So that's the second thing. Um, the third one has just been the massive population growth that we've seen, which, look, we knew we would have solid population growth based on kind of the federal immigration targets of, of call it 500,000. What everybody missed was the size of the non-permanent resident boom. And, and there we're talking about like international students and temporary workers. Um, that cohort's expanded by almost 750,000 in the last year. And when you do that, then that adds tremendous pressure on the rental market. And then when you get all this crazy pressure on the rental market, it, it in a roundabout way drives housing demand, both by people who are in the rental market and are like, this is crazy. I got to I gotta own a place or by prospective investors who pile in. And, and, and a lot of times what we're seeing is people buying single family houses, turning it into student accommodations and, and jamming like 10 or 15 kids in there. Right. Which is crazy. So that's the third thing. Um, and then the last thing is just like the structure of the mortgage market. We have not felt the full magnitude of the rate hikes yet um, because of things like the variable uh, rate mortgages that have static payments, right? So in Canada, and this is, a, this is sort of a strange concept, but about 80% of the variable rate mortgages have uh, static payments. Yeah. Um, and so as rates go up, the amortization automatically extends. Now, this is important because that's still about 35% of all mortgages outstanding are variable. Right. And so what one of the wild charts that I track is, OK, you, you've got this metric called the household debt service ratio, mm -hmm. which is a really important indicator because it basically shows the share of disposable income at the aggregate level that goes towards servicing debt payments. Um, and and it's a really good predictor of things like consumer spending trends, because obviously as more income goes towards debt, you have less for spending. Um, but it's also a really good predictor of things like um, non-performing loans. Right. So so as uh, on the consumer and mortgage side, because yeah. as that rate ratio goes higher, it just becomes harder and harder to service those debts. Um, and what's really fascinating is like that ratio is going up, um, but not as quickly as what you might expect. But then when you pull it apart and you look at the interest only component and the mm -hmm. principal repayment component, they're going in completely opposite directions. And, oh, I, yeah. and I have a chart that you can maybe throw up. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll put it up. Yeah, but it's a crazy chart, right? So you see interest component basically up to 15-year highs, principal repayment, it, it has dropped dramatically. And the reason for that is just that you now are at the point where, you, know, you like CIBC's mortgage book, 20% of it is negatively amortizing right now. What? Right? And that, so, like, that's crazy. Like, that's that's just, a, just a wild number. And and just, Ben, on that point, you know, talking about, like, you know, we just haven't felt the full brunt. What's the, like, how much is the amortization extended, like, the duration of these mortgages? Obviously, if payments are remaining static, you know, it's it's pushing out the amortization significantly. I, I just don't know what the, like, what how how much has that been pushed out on average? Or, or you know, what are you seeing? Yeah, so... The banks actually disclose this, and I'm going to be ballparking it, so I'm sure somebody can correct me in the comments. But but I know that before this rate hike cycle, the the share of big bank mortgages that had amortizations in excess of 35 years was like sub one percent. Right? It was it was almost nothing. Yeah. Um, and now you've got some of them. Now off the top of my head, I think some of them are are kind of 20, 25, 30 percent. I have amortizations in excess of of 35 years. 
Um, so it's a dramatic increase and, and you're really seeing that in this, this aggregate data. And so my point is that's the fourth thing that's kind of holding things together, but, but that's not a permanent fix. And, and basically we have very big renewal years in both 2024 and 2025. And importantly with those variable rate mortgages, when they renew, the, 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 the law dictates that it reverts back to the original amortization schedule. And so now you've got to amortize a larger mortgage balance over a shorter remaining period. It's like a double hit. So, so yeah. a lot of those borrowers are facing payment increases 40, 50, 60% when they renew in 2024, 2025. And so those are really, to me, like that's, that, those are the years where that's going to kind of, that, that rubber will meet the road. So that's kind of the four big things where I think like why it hasn't really had more of an impact, but I, I don't think any of those are permanent. And, and the other thing I would just point is like, on the population growth stuff, like I don't know if you're seeing it, but there's like been a dramatic tone change around, um, I think just the whole perception of immigration policy in Canada. One hundred percent. And and I've I've been banging the drum on this. I'm completely in favor of the permanent immigration targets. Okay, yeah. so the feds have like a five hundred thousand roughly immigration targets. And look. Like, I think that's open for discussion. I think there's yeah, yeah, a yeah. reasonable case to be made that maybe, you know, maybe that's the right number. Maybe it should be higher. Maybe it should be lower. I don't know. But we shouldn't just like pull it out of, out of the hat and be like, okay, this year it's 500,000. But like, well, why is it? Like, let's talk about that. Right. But that, that said, I don't fundamentally have an issue with that. So, so Ben, maybe just a question on that. Like, the, you know, right-sized immigration, I don't think anyone, you know, that's, you know, that's been a hallmark of, you know, what's made Canada a great country. But when you have a rental stock, you know, at lows, it's just like, surely there is a flexible way where we can, you know, you know, we, we can adjust those targets according to like what we can actually intake. Right. Sure. This is really important. This is really important Tom. Okay. So, so there's, two, there's kind of two main things that are driving population growth right now. One is that federal target of permanent, permanent immigration. That's 500,000. Okay. But the population grew by 1.2 million last quarter on a year of year basis. So it's like, well, how do, if you're targeting 500,000, how'd you get to 1.2 million? Right. And this is, this is where my big issue is. So you've kind of got uh, permanent residents adding 450,000. Then you've got non-permanent residents, international students, temporary workers. That's been like 700,000 of that growth. Enormous. And so that to me is where the issue is because right. um, you think about international students, we've seen an absolute boom in international students. And, and fundamentally, this is like a really, to me, this is a broken system because yeah. um, the, the colleges and universities don't have a cap on how many international students they can bring in. They are incentivized to ramp up their, their enrollment because you're talking about two, three, four X, the, the, uh, the tuition for international students, yeah. um, but there's no real oversight from the government and there's no, there's no, um, uh, no mandate that they provide the housing necessary to accommodate those students. And so like, like there's some low hanging fruit here. And to me, that's a, that's a big area that needs to be addressed. And you're starting to see kind of like a tone change around that. Like a year ago, you couldn't talk about this. Like you'd be like, you'd be shouted down and canceled. And now everyone's like, Hey, wait a minute, maybe okay. we should be, thinking about whether this is the right number and maybe we should be tightening up those those non-permanent resident uh, uh cohorts and i think that's what you're going to see and and if they do that that's going to take a lot of steam out of the population growth that we've seen right it could it could easily if you tighten that marginally it could easily cut population growth in half and you could be adding you know 600,000 which i think is a much better number over the long term you know give us a chance to actually build the housing necessary for oh, 600,000 yeah. versus 1.2 million 
No, well, Ben, you're highlighting a really important point. You know, this is this is you know these are the things we should be talking about. Like, you know, this is uh, you know where we have breaks in the system. Let's address that and you know let's right size this. But you know, to your point, right before you be you know you be shut it down. You you know you can't you can't be against this. But now at least you know we're you know we're talking about people who can't you know we've got a rental crisis, right? And and you know at the same time all of these other you know all of these other wicks are lit. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's an incredible time and space right now. And so I. If I could just circle back, because I get wrote, wrote down that you know that that aspect of uh, I think it was greater than thirty five years you know on on the books before it was less than one percent now it's uh, now it's anywhere twenty five to thirty percent that's a significant amortization uh, extensions that you know that's been happening across the board. I, looking at this, um, you know, I think you said twenty four twenty five is is when we'll start to see the renewal cycle, and by law uh, they have to right you know get bring the bring the amortization period back is this where the government can say well wait a minute um the population this is a significant part of your book the 30 percent of the population can't absorb 50 percent just big you know big jump ups has that has there been a conversations around that or uh, you know who how are people you know how's the government thinking about that or are, are they just you know or how are they planning for that yeah. So first off, I'd point out that you can look at like BNS and National are the two big banks that that have true floating payment variable. So the interest rate hikes are passed on kind of like point for point. Um, the other four big of the big six have these kind of static payments. And at this point, um, we're not seeing like a dramatic difference in non-performing loans mm. yet between the two. And so you know, now again, I think a lot of it gets back to like the built-up savings and just there's a bit of a yeah. buffer and it's going to take time. But, but it's not like it's a crisis at those two. And, and so, if it was, then maybe the government would have grounds to really kind of be like, okay, well, what the hell are we going to do with these other ones as they renew? Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is just like, you know, you, you get a bit of income growth. We've we have seen some strong wage growth. Like, I don't know that it's going to be cataclysmic, but but I would say. You know, 30, 40% increase in monthly payments is going to absolutely sap a lot of discretionary spending out of the economy. And it'll definitely move the needle on, on mortgage delinquencies. Like, but it's also important to remember that they're, they're absurdly low right now, right? Like you're still 15 basis points of arrears. Long-term average is like 35. So you could double from here and still be kind of below normal levels, which is, I, I think it's absolutely going to happen in the next year. You can even go up 3x from here and and kind of not really be at like normal distressed kind of high end of the range. Um, so there's a lot of room to to see those things move higher before the government necessarily needs to panic. But that said, like there's nothing that would stop them from saying, look, um, previously amortizations were capped at 30. We'll allow you to go up to 35 just just because we recognize that rates are like that, you know, they, of right. course they're going to do stuff like that. That's yeah, not yeah. going to change things. Right. So like that, no, no, yeah. it's not like, it's not like that is a complete solution. It means you go from your rates going 40% or payments going up 40% to going up 25 or 30%. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like it's not a solution. It's just, it, it softens the blow at the edges. And I think of course they're going to do that. Yeah. And maybe just on the consumer and, and just the indebtedness, obviously, as, as you're saying right now, we're not seeing the stress, but canary in the coal mine, uh, you, you, you know, you get your debt, that service ratio that you mentioned, and I'll, I'll make sure to get that graph up. And then, but in addition to that, you're starting the credit card situation is, is like that surely is, is a, is a, is a leading indicator of, of things to come. 
Yeah, I think so. So when you look at um, different credit products, so credit cards, um, secured lending like autos, um, you know, lines of credit, all of them are seeing delinquency rates that are basically up to like 2007 levels um, with the exception of mortgages. And so to me, it's just like, it's a natural mm. order of operations. If you think about it in Canada, like no one just wakes up one day and defaults on a mortgage. There's like a, a normal process. And the first thing is you tighten your belt and, and you're certainly starting to see that, right? I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't been super clear in the official retail sales data, but like look at the Canadian Tire report last week. Like it was, like it was, it was really like, pretty wild they basically came out and were like yeah it's like consumers hit a wall in june in our according to our numbers um and so you're starting to see that so that's the first thing that happens the second thing is then you start defaulting on credit cards and certainly we're seeing credit card um arrears start to tick up loss rates are ticking up like not alarming levels but certainly moving in in the wrong direction and then you know you roll that forward you get a bit of softness in employment and then it shows up in mortgages and so we're probably still i don't know three to six months out but that said, like you're starting to see pretty material increases in delinquencies in, for example, the non-prime lenders, right? So you've got like the you know home capital equitables of the world. If you look at their latest quarters, like you had pretty material increases in non-performing loans there, which should be expected because that's you know, it's important to remember those are one and two year terms on their non-prime loans, right? Which is a weird thing in Canada. We kind of like our our the the non-prime segment tends to be kind of like one and two year bullet loans. Right. Um, and there, like the renewal pain is very severe. Like if you took out a two-year loan um, that's renewing today, you're looking at 400, 450 basis point increase in, in rates. Like it's, it's dramatic. Yeah, it's dramatic. So of course it would show up there first. That's uh, it, yeah, it, it's a, it's, it's incredible how like you know piecing piecing you know all the you know all the pain pain pressure points, but they're coming right. Like there's no question. It's it's it, you know it's all it's all tacking down now. With respect to the Bank of Canada, um, our rate hike cycle, you know, one of the fastest on record. Uh, where do you, you know maybe reading through the tea leaves and just you know how you how you vision um them going forward obviously inflation is going to be a key key input into that but also vis-a-vis uh the u.s and uh you know how you know how we you know how we do that tango yeah with, with the heavy caveat here that i did not see the magnitude of rate hikes coming out I, mean, I don't think anybody did but i know there were there were some people out there that were calling for a lot more rate hikes than i was and so you know they, they were very right on this um I think we've got one more in the tank. I think that markets are probably right. We're going to see one this fall. Um, and then it's really hard to see much beyond that unless inflation really starts to rip away from them. But but at this point, that doesn't look super likely. So I, I think probably the markets got it priced right where we, we peak out at like five and a quarter. But importantly, and, and I think what the market's starting to wrestle with now is this idea that it's, not, it's just not going to come down that quickly. Um, and I absolutely am in that camp that we're just in a structurally higher inflation environment. Um, and it's one of those kind of like once bitten, twice shy. They, they, they never make the same mistake twice. They always overcorrect on the other side and they clearly left policy rates too low for too long. They're not gonna make that mistake twice. And so I think they're gonna be very slow in bringing that back um, unless we see like real like, risk of a financial crisis, not, not a run of the mill recession, not just like your standard business cycle, but a true financial crisis. Then there's, there's one policy playbook and that's to cut rates to zero and go in QE, right? And so that they'll do that if we have a true financial crisis, but barring that, um, I think they're going to bottom out at like kind of like the 3% range, which means that, you know, two, three years from now, you're still going to be looking at mortgages in that kind of 
four, four and a half percent range, which is a dramatically different environment than yeah. what we've seen in the past. Um, now, what worries me, though, is if you look in the U.S., like the, the consumers, and I've got this chart, if you look at that debt service ratio I was talking about, you look at the Canadian debt household debt service ratio versus the U.S., we've really never seen that gap as wide as it is right now between the, the, the two. And, and what it suggests is that there's a lot more policy room in the U.S. or a lot more room to absorb high rates, right? Because they've gone through the leveraging cycle. Their, their households have locked into 30-year mortgages at ultra-low rates. So, like, it's just not going to hurt them the same way it will for us. And so if the Fed has to, like, keep its foot on the, the brakes, I guess, uh, okay. and tighten things, right? Yeah, yeah. If put foot on the gas, but that's not the yeah, right yeah, way. Yeah. Like, if they keep tightening, yeah. right? And um, we'll, we'll kind of import that tightness and import that, that monetary policy on our side. And, and really, like, the Bank of Canada controls the ultra-short end but once you're even out at the five year, like it really tracks the U.S. And that's a real concern because that's what prices are fixed year, our fixed rate mortgages. So there's always that risk that like yeah. even as Canada weakens, that the rate hike cycle will have less of an effect stateside and they'll have to stay tighter than we would want to. So normally, like throughout cycles, Canada and the U.S. are more or less in tandem in terms of monetary policy. And you could make an argument that maybe the U.S. has to be a little tighter for for longer and um and you know we could in, in theory import some of that wow i mean that you make a great point there on just just you know how the tether of the five-year right like and it's it's you know how it's it really you know it, the, the influence of, of us you know the, the us uh rate uh you know um interest rates in in that period as well right it's it's not it's not as you know anchored to to what you know what the bank of canada is going to do it's a it's a great point and now ben you like lots of interesting points here maybe putting it together i, I there was a great chart you tweeted out um that you know silver lining I look, in canada across the country um what was interesting you had a house percentage uh it was house percentage uh change from peak uh so basically we had um every re every region down so canada as you mentioned earlier was down uh, in aggregate is down 11 percent. i'm looking at bad places let's look at uh London, Ontario, down north of 20%. Uh, Toronto is, uh, call it 13. Uh, but what was interesting, so this is price percentage change from peak. Um, Calgary is flat. <laughs> and I just yeah. kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, okay, so we have, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of storm clouds. There's no no doubt about that. But what's, uh, you know, in terms of the patch and, you know, maybe kind of some insights on, on uh, is, there, is there a beacon here in the, in the, in the country of Canada? Yeah, it, great reminder that there is no such thing as a Canadian housing market. It's a market of various regions um, with very different economic drivers at points in time. Um, starting in 2021, I started pounding the table that the easiest layup macro trade, and there's no like easy way to put it on per se, but the easiest call to make is that you'll see Calgary outperform the Canadian average. And whether that would come through just stronger price appreciation or whether it would just hold in better while the rest of the country kind of like weakened. Uh, I just thought it was a layup. And, and, and part of that um, is just that, you know, prices were so beaten down, we're effectively getting to the point where there were below replacement costs. I mean, flat for over a decade, but yet you had just um, an economy that had gone through uh, a bit of a rebalancing away from traditional oil and gas. And, and you're starting to see more of a kind of a tech and, and uh, startup um, renaissance, which makes sense because you've got like these incredibly cheap startup costs. You've got incredibly favorable tax regimes across North America. You've got this incredibly well-educated young labor force. Like there was no reason for Calgary not to do well. 
Um, and it had just been so beaten down. You had, you had population outflows for so many years. You're like, well, that's not going to go on forever. And you'd add like CapEx in the oil sands fall every year and drag on GDP. You're like, well, that's not going to go on forever. And so um, that, that to me was, was an easy call. And, and I still think there's more room for that to run. I think we're still in relatively early days. Look, you're starting to see some froth there more in the condo space. You're seeing a lot of like pre-construction sales. Like clearly a lot of people that were buying in Toronto are like, oh, geez, the, the cash flows don't make sense. Let's go to Calgary. Yeah, and, yeah. and that worries me. But I think that's more of a story for like maybe late next year before it starts to really matter. Because there's just not a lot in the construction pipeline relative to current demand. Uh, which is always a sign of overbuilding. And so there's certain charts that I track and, and they're just, there's not, they're not flashing red yet. So that was one area. The other area is Atlantic Canada. And it's interesting, like the, the two areas of the country that are relatively affordable are also the areas that are seeing dramatic interprovincial flows, right? So you're seeing strong flows of people from Ontario, um, less or so BC, but but big flows from those provinces into Alberta and into Atlantic Canada. And I don't think that's going to change. I think that work from home is fundamentally a game changer for some of those areas. And um, I just think they're going to do better. And so, like, why wouldn't you if you can if you, if you can pull that arbitrage off where you're selling in Ontario and being able to offer, or if you're a young person, and you're looking, well, where do I want to put roots down? Like, uh, it's just hard to imagine that those areas aren't going to do well for a while longer. Yeah, no, you, you make a great point. Like work from home has definitively changed how how anyone should look at their, you know, their their, their housing situation. And, and uh, you know, I think employers are uh, have to be flexible about, you know, where where they seek talent. Um, and, you know, you're going to see hubs change. So, so in, you know, I know anecdotally like that, you know, that move from Toronto to, to Calgary and, and uh, East Coast as well. But, you know, really, you hear a lot about the Toronto Calgary kind of, you yeah. know, that, that flow, right? Um, yep. and, and I one important thing we didn't touch on and I, I end on this, it just... It, we were it, we're in Toronto. Um, I'm looking at like you know we, we just see uh condos like sorry we we're seeing commercial uh real real estate office towers empty. Fifty percent of the people going in. Yeah. Uh, and you but you have on the condo side you sorry on the on the rental side you know real tightness. What <laughs> that's clearly an area and that's not just Toronto specific. That's you know that's a North American uh global problem work from home has changed the dynamics of uh you know the viability of these office towers is there like a um you know do we ever come back you know like how does it and what's the distress for the underlying companies exposed uh reads etc and then b is, is surely there's a way to 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 use that to convert it to you know convert it to, to condos or whatever but you know i tweeted out something like that and people were like listen you know you got it's not as simple to throw plumbing everywhere it's, it's not it's not like a you know uh cheap and cheerful like you know uh you know like the little the little house flip that you do in toronto this is like a legit project and so yeah. i thought i thought it would be interesting actually ben you know maybe it's a project for us to do is to be like hey listen <laughs> let, like figure out can, take one of these towers give me a floor let me figure out the true cost of converting one of these i who knows but but i'd love to kind of get your take on on where the where where that goes if, if there's one thing that's there it's these beaconing towers are half empty yeah, absolutely. So I, look, I think they've been doing this for a few years in Calgary because they, they're sort of like a few years ahead in terms of that commercial office kind of glut, um, especially in the like the office side. Um, man, I'm pretty sure I read that they've done a couple of major conversions there. Okay, I, I'm, it's not my bailiwick. I would not, I would not be the person to ask it. I, I, 
I've read what you've read, which is just that this is a far more challenging thing to, to convert from office to residential. I, I, I'm not the expert on that. I wouldn't know. I mean, it seems to make sense to me. Like, why wouldn't you, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now part of the issue with the rental side is, so right now we've got this absurd rental market where there's just like, I mean, inhumanely tight, like just absurd. And, and remember, like this gets back to the discussion around non-permanent residents, because if you take 750,000 non-permanent residents, like international students and temporary workers, they're all renters. Yeah. So if you throw 750,000 of them in the Canadian population in one year, like, of course, you're going to have an insane rental market. Now, of course. the thing with that cohort is it's is massively volatile. And every time that we have had a recession historically, that, that cohort actually shrinks. And this is something that not a lot of people talk about, right? And which kind of makes sense because if you've got a lot of temporary workers, they're here when the labor market's tight and then they leave when the labor market loosens. That's actually definitionally the point of that program is to meet those labor market needs. Uh, if the unemployment rate were to go up 200 basis points, you'll see a dramatic drop in temporary workers. And I think that's probably where we're going to go. So like, I think that some of the tightness in the rental market will sort of work its way out on its own over the next couple of years. Um, not to the point where it's a disaster by any means, but to the point where we're back to like pre-COVID levels, which is still a relatively tight market, but not, not like disastrously tight. So I think that's, I think that's probably where we're going. Um, now you'd ask about, okay, work from home. Is that like a permanent thing? Man, I don't know. I, I kind of lean, I would kind of fade out a little bit. Like, I just feel like, at the end of the day, if you want to advance in a company, so much of it is around who you know, and it's the relationships that you have. And you know, from working in an office, like you just can't build those relationships without being there. And I feel like it just takes some time. And once you get people that are all working from home and they're realizing, hey, that, that person that's gone into the office and knows that they're getting the promotions and I'm not, yeah. like it just takes some time. And then I think the culture will start to change where everyone's like, well, if I want to get, from, I, I got to be there. I got to meet people. I got to be at these meetings. We got to go up for drinks after. And it's like the whole culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just don't buy that that's gone forever. I think that there's, I think that you may see more of that kind of hybrid model, maybe stick around a bit, but like this idea that that we'll just have like, you know, the zombie apocalypse, like no one's downtown. It's just like, you know, empty buildings. Like, I just, man, I don't see it. I don't see no, it. I, no, no. You, you know, I, I joke around with my neighbors. Like, you know, it's never been easier enough. Like, you know, for, for the for the dude that was just mediocre, all you got to do is show up with your lunch pail, man. Fucking just show, totally. up, with your, show up with your lunch totally. pail. Totally. Go out and for you, drinks you, after. Totally. And you'll go faster in your career than you would have ever in any other generation. Just show them, show up show up to work 100%. and and that's kind of what's lost like you know there's a mentorship gap where uh you know and it's on both sides i'm not just saying you know it's not just the zoomers or whatever you know it's not the 20 somethings it's you know it's the guys who have the experience too they're like i'm not you know i don't want to go to work right i so you've got this situation where you've got you know seasoned veterans who are like listen my life's better kind of just you know jamming at home and you know what and then you got the other side is you know kids don't want to come it's a weird dynamic where ultimately it leaves uh, a generation, um, you know, an age segment that, you know, doesn't have the mentorship and it's kind of, you know, and maybe, heck, maybe Twitter's the new mentorship, right? Maybe it's just jamming on spaces 24 hours a day. Who, who knows what the pathway is, but it's definitely not the, you know, it's not the old style. If, if you are a mediocre somebody and you're just like, I just want to grind, you've never had it easier. Just show up. I agree with that. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a great take. Yeah, I agree. <laughs>
<laughs> oh man, well, Ben, it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you know, we'll have to do the next one at uh, at a pub here in Toronto or or here at Grizzle HQ next time you come through, guys. If you don't know, no, Ben has been uh, the the you know the greatest uh, analyst in Canadian housing. I've uh, I've had the pleasure of knowing him for oh man, quite some time, man. We it goes it goes way back, and always great takes. Ben, thank you so much, Northco Advisors. You guys, you're gonna see the link in the in the YouTube below. Hit that uh, best insight. Full stop, Canadian housing consumer. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks, Thomas. Good to see you, man. Great to see you, man.